And good evening or good morning, everyone, wherever on this rotating globe you happen to be located. You're on the other side of midnight, that's for sure. And boy, do we have a show for you tonight. We are on the eve of something, well, we're going to spend the next three hours kind of discussing what that something might be, as you may or may not have noticed. It's kind of hard these days if you're watching television, if you're tuned into Facebook, if you're looking at any of the mainstream newspapers, particularly the uh, New York Times and the Washington Post, you'll see that there is a new wave of journalism, an approach which I have not seen in all the decades I've been looking at this, and that is the subject of UFOs recoded by the Pentagon UAPs. I mean, where are you without an acronym? Um, has suddenly assumed major mainstream proportions and is being dealt with at very serious and high levels. And that's going to be the subject of the next three hours. A, why is this happening? B, what does it portend? And C, what the hell could happen next? I mean, in the last five years, everything politically that you could imagine going weird has gone weird. So is this going to be part of the continuum of weirdness or is humanity about to take a sharp turn in a different direction up to and including the mysterious Chinese? Um, we're going to be talking a lot more about Mars tomorrow night and the Chinese landing and all that. But I will presage what I'm going to be discussing with my two guests this morning uh, by saying that about three weeks ago, three weeks and change, the Chinese landed an amazing technological feat. They landed successfully an unmanned spacecraft, a rover, a lander on the planet Mars, which then promptly disappeared. We've had literally just a handful of images, and they're not the stunning color panoramas that we saw from their missions to the moon, Chang 3, Chang 4, and Chang 5, the latter which actually brought back samples by robotic means to China uh, from the moon. So the Chinese do this extraordinary feat. Uh, first time out of the box, they successfully land an unmanned set of spacecraft on the planet Mars. They give us two or three black and white images. They roll the rover on these images down the ramp. They touch the Martian soil and then nothing for day after day after day. Where have the Chinese disappeared? Well, I have this feeling, and we're going to talk about it tonight with my two guests, that it's somehow involved in what we're going to be talking about in terms of this graduation of the whole UFO phenomenon from the kicker story at the end of the 11 o'clock news and the giggle giggle between, let's say, two anchors and the way the mainstream media are suddenly dealing with this subject. Um, if you want to follow along, what you want to do is you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL, the other side of midnight.com. Click on tonight's banner, which says very prominently, um, Democrats and Republicans unified in taking UFOs seriously. And no, that's not a typo. That's an um, editorial statement. And my guests tonight are Joseph Bookman, Dr. Joseph Bookman, and Steve Bassett. Um, let, me, let me kind of uh, you know, introduce you to Dr. Bookman first, if you have not been following the bouncing ball. Joseph earned his PhD in media from Indiana University, an MBA in finance from Purdue, and tenure as associate professor of marketing and finance. He is the past chair of the Libertarian Party of Utah, the past chair of the Libertarian Party's National Platform Committee, a current member of the National Party's Financial Audit Committee, and served as the moderator of the 2013 citizen hearing on disclosure. And there's a lot more on there, but you can read that on the other side of midnight. Um, uh, let me introduce my second guest, and I'll bring them both on so that we can save a little time here. Um, Stephen Bassett is my second guest, but <clears throat> first is not last and last is not least. 
because um, let me let me introduce Steve uh, in in the following fashion. Okay, there was a major story in the New York Times and in the Washington Post, and Steve made one of them. <clears throat> According to the Post, this is Steve's background. Steve Bassett is a registered lobbyist, political activist, and disclosure advocate, someone who pushes the formal acknowledgement by heads of state of an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. He argues that being more forthcoming about UAPs, that's UFOs in modern lingo, will serve to strengthen the credibility of the evidence and the government itself. Quoting Mr. Bassett, The American people may hear from their government the biggest truth ever relayed in a formal way to the human race, Bassett said. Now, if you're going to start truth-telling to regain trust of the American people, why not start with a big one? So without further ado, gentlemen, welcome back to the other side of midnight. Hi, Richard. Hi there. I'm you too. Joseph, are you there? Mr. Bookman. He has has to unmute. (laughs) So much for that PhD in communication. (laughs) Well, what I wanted to do is I wanted to segue directly, Stephen, into the Washington Post piece, but we tried to post it tonight. It was sent to me. I was able to get into it easily many times. We tried to post it on the website, and it says, paywall, paywall. So you have to have a subscription, I guess, to read the um, sterling comments that uh, Steve Bassett said. What I found was interesting is that they used you and this really important quote. Now, if you're going to start truth-telling to regain the trust of the American people, why not start with a big one? That's you directly, and you closed out the piece. And the reason, everybody, this is important is this Washington Post story – straight down the middle, summarizing in many, many paragraphs the last 75 years of this turgid tale, was written by none other than the Washington Post's White House Bureau Chief, Ashley Parker. Mr. Bassett, how did Hmm. you land this one? The way it works is you get out there and you get covered, you do interviews, uh, uh, and I've been moving toward that because, as you know, Richard, I kind of took some time off back in 2017 and went to the UK and then everything broke while I was over there and nobody remembered me. And so I've been working my way back in. And the break was when the Washington Times did an excellent article a couple weeks back. And the Washington Times is read by all the, the politicians and the journalists in town. Right? It's the other paper and it's the conservative side. So that put me back in play. Now, not that uh, the Washington Post has uh, put me in a number of articles over the years, but you know how it is. If you're out of the picture for a couple of two years, boom, you don't exist anymore. So anyway, uh, when she put this piece together, she thought, okay, I'll call him. Now, the, the most important thing about this is that this is the first time that I've been able to provide information to somebody as high up as the bureau chief for the White House. Uh, which is not only a high position, but it's also political. And then also she went to great lengths. We talked about 40 minutes. Everything is recorded now. In other words, when you give an interview, it's all recorded, which means that your quotes are going to be correct. And that's a fantastic thing. In the old days when they were taking shorthand, oh, that was not good. So not only uh, would you record it, and it was about 40 minutes of the interview, but she went to great lengths to ask me exactly how I should be referred to. That mm. doesn't happen much. That simply doesn't happen much. It happens uh, with serious stories, Stephen. This is another data point. It should. It should. But usually they call you whatever they want. The UFO lobbyist, a UFO believer, whatever. No, 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 no. So, but it reflects something I already knew. We've crossed the Rubicon in terms of the media uh, on this issue. Uh, the, the days of stupid articles are fading fast, fast. Uh, it is being elevated the appropriate level that it always deserved to be. And so that makes it easier for everybody, not only the journalists, uh, but also for uh, us, the witnesses, researchers, all that. So, and that was notable. So there's a couple of notable things about it. And I was happy to give the final quote. It's great. Uh, but I'm not done there. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this is my paper, 
right? The Washington Post is my paper. My family on my mother's side lived in the, the Washington area since 1912. I've lived in, in and out of Washington numerous times, visited even more times. Uh, the Post is my paper. I've seen all the president's men six times. I think I've seen the Post three times, the movies. And so I would like to see this paper get way out in front of this issue. And right now, there is, interestingly enough, a very similar competition going on between the Post and the New York Times, as we saw with the Pentagon Papers mm. many, many years ago. And it's fascinating. to It's, it's not quite the same, but... Uh, back then, the Times broke the Pentagon Papers initially. The Post was completely out of the game. They're scrambling to get back in, but technically could probably never catch up except the courts uh, injuncted the New York Times and shut them down on that, on that material until they could be reviewed in the courts. And the Post was able to jump in because they also got a copy and off they went. Um, this is somewhat similar. The New York Times breaks the two, the two articles that essentially changed everything. And that's, of course, to, uh, 1917, uh, 1970, <laughs> December 16th, 2017. Yeah, time flies so, when you're having fun. <clears throat> those were the two big articles uh, that really launched everything. And once again, the, the next most important article is the one they just published. Why? Because there have been many articles uh, in the last three years. But this one is about the report, the uh, pending report. You're talking now about the Times, right? The uh, so-called leak. I'm talking about the Times. That we're yeah. following, you know, which again, I couldn't post tonight because there's a paywall. Ah. But I've got it in front of me, so I can, I can read all you want. I can easily uh, address it in any way. But um, um, so this time. Well, before we get been... into the substance, let me see if we got Joseph with. Joseph, are you there? I am and I hit the unmute button right before you asked Steve that question. I figure I wouldn't be on for another hour. <laughs> <laughs> we try to be fair and balanced over here. That's okay. All right, Joe, go away for an hour, have some dinner. All right. One back. of the distinguishing things about both of these gentlemen, which my audience may or may not know, is that both have run for Congress based on the UFO platform, on disclosure, on ET ET platform. Extraterrestrials, yes, yes. Yes. Um well, in most people's minds, UFOs and ETs are synonymous. That's why when we get to the Times thing, I can. it's kind of interesting how many angels can dance on the head of this extraterrestrial pin. Because in, in the minds of most people, as soon as, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, Joseph, why don't you tell us where you are tonight and what you're doing in Chicago? Because uh, there's an interesting connection personally between what you're doing tonight and what Robin and I did several years ago. Yes. Um, neither Steve nor I ran on the UAP platform. That much is for sure. This ridiculous new term that even the media now is saying UAP. Well, that means UFO. Uh, and that, you know, that means ET, uh, alien, whatever. Um, I ran for Congress twice back in 2008 and then in a special election in 2017 when Jason Chaffetz resigned just after getting reelected in Utah's third district. And on each of those occasions, I called for uh, whistleblower protection for whistleblowers in the federal government or among our contractors for federal agencies regarding waste, fraud, criminal activity, and the engagement of an extraterrestrial presence with humanity. Um, the people who work in areas where they know this reality, carry a very heavy burden for the rest of their life. And um, uh, I came out here in part to visit grandchildren, uh, in part to have lunch with Donald uh, Schmidt, the leading Roswell researcher mm. uh, who lives near my uh, grandchildren. And, and Don and I had this conversation just two days ago. The, the people, the witnesses he's met, uh, talked to, and, and, and who I have as well, who carry this burden of having signed non-disclosure agreements not to talk about this under heavy penalties. One of, one of them told me, look, as much as I might like to talk about things like this with my own wife, if I were to do so, I'd go to a place worse than Leavenworth. She would lose the health insurance and pension. Please don't ask me about this again. Um, that's a heavy burden to carry. And it looks like that burden's been lifted in this new environment where this is taken seriously and not ridiculed. And people who have come forward, American heroes like Bob Salas, for example, um, 
talking about their experiences as a military officer dealing with craft that shut down nuclear missiles in his case, they haven't been um, sent off to Leavenworth. And I think the odds of that are dropping like a rock now because of the, the seriousness with which this is taken. Um, the other reason I came to Chicago was the Libertarian Party's National Committee uh, met this weekend, um, today and tomorrow they're meeting. Uh, and I had uh, two opportunities to address them, one for a half an hour on, on the preservation work I've done on the founders' uh, uh, paper files who passed away about a decade ago, which are being acquired by the Library of Congress for permanent uh, archiving and preservation, which means the Libertarian Party has reached a significant, I think, uh, milestone in being seriously such that the, the library would see our our history worth preserving. And then secondly, actually, you mentioned I'm on the audit committee. I got elected chair of the audit committee. So I gave the uh, audit committee's report as well. I also had proposed a uh, motion for the Libertarian National Committee to address the whistleblower issue and open hearings on, again, waste, fraud, criminal activity, and the ET issue. I think those are the four biggies. And we should not punish, uh, persecute, prosecute people for reporting crimes by their government. And I see the birthright issue of whether we're alone in the cosmos or not, uh, keeping any evidence of that uh, away because of a non-disclosure agreement is anti-constitutional, uh, should be illegal, I think is illegal, but certainly should not only be uh, uh, something dealt with with the threat of punishment or dire consequences, but it should be rewarded people who come forward uh, on those issues. Um, these are heroes. And so um, that proposal's out there. It hasn't been submitted uh, to the committee for a vote yet, but the individual managing it uh, is a member of the Libertarian National Committee who actually uh, worked in classified government research somewhere where he commuted from Las Vegas to somewhere not too far away from there, apparently, mm. by air. So we can all guess what that is. And of course, he's kept his non-disclosure agreement. He hasn't told me where he worked or what he did exactly. Uh, but I do know that he, he would disappear for a week to 10 days at a time with no internet, and no phone calls, uh, somewhere where he was working. Where, where's that? At any rate, um, he and I had some long conversations. And of course, politics works not just by open voting in a committee, but by lobbying and one-on-one -on -one conversations. And so uh, after the meeting today, there was a two-hour reception at the top of the Swiss Hotel looking down on Navy Pier and the fireworks that did not happen tonight, at least not by the time I left to rush home to be on the phone with you, Richard. So I wish <laughs> that you, headline you. you started the show with, and by the way, Steve, I can go for an hour without letting you in too, but I'm going to shut up in a second. <laughs> and, and I want everyone to know, Steve Bassett is a hero of mine. This, this is a man who has been a firm, committed stand for truth against uh, horrible opposition, uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, challenges uh, with remarkable tenacity and, and gentle, uh, good humor and um, kindness and passion for this issue that, that, that is truly admirable. But I wish that headline said not Republicans and Democrats are united <laughs> in taking UFOs seriously, but uh, libertarians, Republicans, and Democrats are united. Um, and I'll close with this uh, before I turn it back to Steve. Uh, I'll be forever grateful to Steve in 2008 when I ran for the United States House. He invited me uh, to the X conference in Gaithersburg, just outside of D.C., um, gave me a VIP pass and put me on a couple of panels. And on one of those panels, I said something that I've only become more adamant in believing, which is uh, the life that is out there that's had time to evolve must have the non-initiation of aggression principle as a core paradigm of their political behavior, which means they don't initiate force against each other. I think any culture that thinks the initiation of force is a good thing or in any way justifiable eventually self-destructs. So I believe, and it's more a matter of belief than knowledge, but I believe it's kind of intuitively obvious that they, they need to have non-initiation of aggression as a core value over the course of millennia in order to develop to a point they can travel here, that they would be at least benign to benevolent when looking at humanity. Um, and so um, I think the universe is teeming with libertarians because that's our <laughs> core paradigm for a political loss. In other words, the prime, no directive, the prime directive rules. Yes. I'm 
Roddenberry was right. Roddenberry was in light. You know, Roddenberry saw over the horizon and around the curve and to the next thing over there. I think there's no Democrats and no Republicans anywhere in the mm-hmm. cosmos except for on this one backward planet. Well, hang on, hang on. Teaming. Unless yeah. Gene had sources. Yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, I have personal experience that he probably had sources. So. Anyway, let me let me let me turn back to to Steve. Steve, when did when did you run for Congress on the ET platform? Mr. Bassett. This unmute thing is a real challenge for us. Isn't <laughs> yeah, it? it's a, it's a habit you got to get into. I mean, it's, you know, we're we're all we're all going to become Zoomers mm-hmm. and 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 Skypers soon enough, but I'm still I'm still catching up. So, uh I ran in 2002 in the 8th District of Maryland as an activist maneuver to get attention to the issue uh, because it was a very, very closely followed race. A lot of money was spent. Uh, Kennedy was uh, one of the Kennedy Shrivers was running in the Democratic side. That brought a lot of attention. And Connie Morello, the incumbent, was well liked and served eight terms. And of course, the 8th District of Maryland is boots right up next to Washington, D.C. It, it, it's next to it. So uh, it's covered by the Washington Post. Mm. So I realized if I were to get on the ballot, not just in a primary, if I got in the ballot, then I would be able to probably attend some of the debates, get coverage, attract attention to the issue. And I ran on the extraterrestrial issue, not the UFO issue. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and disclosure, of course, truth embargo, all that. Um, and it, went, it was fine. Uh, I got about 1,700 votes. I got some coverage. So it was, you know, it cost me about, I don't know, seven, eight, nine thousand. We had to gather five thousand signatures to get on the ballot. That was an interesting experience. And uh, yeah, the, the weird thing about it was, is that a lot of the media coverage I had hoped to get was lost, along with the other candidates, because in the middle of the campaign, nearly as it was heating up, to, uh, getting close where the media jumps in, the Beltway snipers showed up yeah. and started shooting yeah. people in the in my in the eighth district of Maryland. They were shooting my. Uh, you know, hopeful constituents, uh, which is America. Okay. I mean, that's just, you have to get up every day in America trying to figure out what you're going to be doing and factor in the possibility that you or somebody around you is going to be shot with, with an automatic weapon. And that's just the way we roll here. And that's okay. Anyway, the point is that I was the first to do that. So I got some mileage out of that. Joe, I think was the second person to be on a ballot uh, in, in a congressional, uh, uh, I mean, an election. Uh, I think he was the second. I think Hildebrand, uh, Hildebrand was after you, Joe. I think he was third. Uh, isn't that right? Aren't you? Aren't, oh, he may have muted. Mm. Anyway, I think he was second. Anyway, the point is, is that uh, these are the things we do. I was also, I was also the first to do it twice, I believe. Oh, okay. Well, there <laughs> you go. Right there, you go. And 2017. And hey, I, I may do it a third time. I well, given, gentlemen, given the rate at which the landscape is changing, I want to focus a little bit on that in terms of, you know, major media, communications, political mindsets. Uh, Joe, if you're serious about that, um, third time could be a charm. Steve would like to see me run with one of the two old, two old parties, sometimes called major parties. <laughs> um, and, you know, in Utah, it's it's an interesting political landscape, but. I um, well, I probably will, and probably as a libertarian, because that's what I'm passionate about in terms of, of what I feel would do the most good. In terms of the odds of getting elected, yeah, I need a campaign manager like Steve to, to push me toward uh, what might actually work. But um, I admire um, anyone who runs uh, for elected political office and does it seriously. Okay, the reason I wanted I to get into this, and I'm, I'm going to collapse time here a little bit because we got five minutes to the bottom of the hour. Um, I okay. wanted to establish the bona fides of both you gentlemen to talk about the Congress, the politics, Washington, and I want to switch back to you, Steve, because you uh. and and Joe have focused on the Congress. You. For many years, we've talked about congressional hearings, et cetera, et cetera. Yet, and this is the thing I find really interesting, person who did this major current piece in the Washington Post, which is the paper of record politically in Washington, the Times right. is there, but the Post, of course, certainly with Bezos' money, uh, out, outweighs them. 
um, was not just any reporter. It was the White House bureau chief for the Washington mm. Post. And yeah. judging from the piece and judging from other things I've seen uh, Ms. Parker do, what is your assessment as to why they either assigned her to do this or she volunteered to do this? Well, as I was saying before, uh, the Pentagon Papers was a big story. It was huge. It was about the misrepresentation of the Vietnam War, which killed a couple of million people. So it was kind of an important thing. And uh, so it, when it broke in the New York Times, it was a very big deal. The Washington Post was not in play. They were off the field. But they got lucky because the uh, the courts up in New York injuncted the Times from from putting anything more out. Uh, because it supposedly violated some laws. And then the Post got its own set of documents, which is an interesting story. It's all in the movie, The Post, pretty well done. Um, and they jumped in and ended up kind of leading. But it, then it continued back and forth. In other words, you've got the, the, the national, the, what is considered the financial paper of record in the United States, competing with the, polit- the United States political paper of record under a major story. Okay, now we move to the current time. The story in play is a hundred times, a thousand times bigger than the Pentagon Papers. And so the Washington, the New York Times again gets the initial uh, move. It's the one that breaks the story, or I say breaks into the issue in a big way. There have been thousands of articles written about We're it. talking December 2017. We're talking December uh, uh, 16, 2017. Now, and so when it comes to this kind of competition, it's, it's really a chess game. And, and some of that comes out in the movie The Post with Tom Hanks. What you write, who gets assigned to write it, where it is in the paper, all of these things play into how that story is going to develop with respect to your paper. And if, and if you're competing with that paper, then you have got to maneuver so as you can uh, get the best possible position. Now, in the case of The New York Times, uh, what they did was, in addition to the fact that obviously they had an exclusive, they assigned three writers to the article, uh, both articles rather, in the New York Times in 1917. Helene Cooper was the staff writer, but a lot of people don't know that Helene Cooper is the Pentagon correspondent. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, and so she is this and White House correspondent. She, she was previously an editor, diplomatic correspondent, a White House correspondent, and was part of the team – the, awarded the 2015 Pulitzer Prize for international reporting. In other words, she is not just regular staff writer. She is really heavy duty. And I, I need to find out exactly what her position is now and if she's based in Washington or not. Leslie Kane, a, a, an independent freelance uh, journalist who has written key stories and been involved in the issue for years and has a strong connection to Podesta, uh, she was on the article. And then they added Ralph Blumenthal. Now, Ralph Blumenthal was a 30-year careerist at the New York Times. He won two Pulitzer Prizes, and he's a legend in journalism. He's on the article. So the message they were sending to everybody out there in journalism was this is not only a big story, but we're really serious about this big story. All right? And so since then, there have been uh, some hey, articles. Hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Okay. My guests this morning are Steve Bassett who, among other things, uh, produced and created the uh, uh, event at the National Press Club. We're going to be talking about it a little later in the morning. My other guest, uh, Dr. Joseph Bookman, has run for Congress now twice on the ET platform and uh, libertarian principles and seems to agree with me that uh, Gene Roddenberry's prime directive seems to have very interesting, elegant libertarian strains. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. For the Green Revolution 2.0 is called Gates 
Ag One, and it's highly funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates. The mission statement is all about how we must accelerate the deployment of new technologies to indigenous farmers, and it's going to help them with climate change. Right? It all, again, it all ties back to that. And we must go in and take their heirloom genetics away from them. Right? These these precious, uh, hardy, resilient seeds that have fed those people in various parts of the world for generations, for for hundreds of generations in some cases, and replace them instead with newly genetically engineered, CRISPR modified, bastardized. That's why I say they're defiling the food supply. Ag tech, as it's called. And so this is why we now need to introduce the idea of a acute food crisis. And I would suggest that they have engineered, and we're staring right now down the barrel of. This is the the urgency in tonight's conversation uh, of an engineered food shortage, and they will use this food shortage, which you're starting to see now around the world, especially as the big bread baskets have started to experience crop failures. And they're shutting down their exports of grains, corn, and soybean. Prices are rising precipitously. That means that the countries that depend on those exports, the net importers, are all already experiencing food crises. And so this is spreading around the world right now. And what will happen as we, you know, as we get through this, is you'll see the media and these think tanks and the UN, all these, all these players, will point. At the problem, it's just the Hegelian dialectic again, right? They'll say, "Now you see, because of climate change, mm-hmm. this is why we're having these food shortages, and of course the pandemic. And this is why, this is why we have to move into indoor vertical farms and lab-grown meat. And this, you, there's no option. Now, now you feel the pain, and now you see why we've been doing this. We've had your interests at heart the whole time. We're from the government. We're here to help." Right, so there's an acute crisis situation that we're now walking into, and that will be used to bring all of this nasty technology in. This is Christian Westbrook with the Ice Age Farmer, and you're listening to the other side of the news. back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday, June 5th, 2021. If you recognize the music in the background, it's because, remember this opening scene in The Day the Earth Stood Still, this UFO coming in over the mall and landing there between the Washington Monument and the uh, nation's capital? Well, something metaphorically very similar is happening before our very eyes, and that's what we're going to kind of probe and try to get into in some depth tonight. Uh, Stephen, again, you, um, I am very intrigued that, that Ashley Parker either chose herself or was chosen to write this because one of the only people in the country who still is kind of treating this the subject with a kind of a smirk is the current president of the United States, Joe Biden. Unlike his predecessor, who he served with as vice president, because if you go back to the uh, uh, other side of midnight, uh, our website, item number three, uh, former president uh, Barack Obama gave an interview, I think, for uh, CBS a few nights ago and was asked about this and dealt with it very very seriously. In fact, he raised the idea that, and this is a direct quote, proof of aliens will lead to new religions and, this of course is inevitable, massive additional military spending. What do you think of the fact that he's the only former president on record who's basically hitting it right on the head? Stephen? Unmuting helps I I wouldn't say that he's hitting it right on the head. This is, again, I've I've said this many times that I'll continue to say it. 
if you want to understand what is going on, uh, and I want to get back to these articles at some point because they are filled with great stuff. Uh, if you want to understand what's going on, you simply cannot take it literally. You have to think of it as like a staged. No, play wait, wait, wait. That, that almost talk. sounds like people when they talked about Trump. Oh, don't take him literally. Take him seriously. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that, and if they did, they're they that's did. whatever. But that's not, yeah. that's not something I would say. I don't care what they say. But what I'm trying to say is is that is that you, there's two things people must constantly keep it must keep in mind. If they if they if they don't think it's true, well, I guess you can't help them. But I know it's true. And that is this. The U.S. government has, been, has known about the E.T. presence, has been dealing with E.T. technology, has had bodies, even had a living E.T. or one or, one or more since the 1940s, early 50s. That's 74 years. So this whole thing about, well, we want to release something, maybe we're going to do an investigation or anything. It's all a, a sort of a play. It's, it's, it's Kabuki like, theater. It's Kabuki theater. Okay. And so you can't take it literally. But when isn't that what most only, of politics turns out to be if you want to get anything really done? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, I think that the reason that this is a theater is because it's so huge, so implicative and so, and so important and so classified and so secret, so transcendent that you just can't deal with it like you're just trying to get an infrastructure bill through. So no, no, the degree that the truth embargo has twisted people's ability to communicate on this or research it or even cover it as a journalist is, is off the scale, at least for a democratic republic. So again, what presidents can say is very limited. What presidents can do is limited. What journalists can say and do. And so the government already knows, the government already has the technology, or has technology they're re-engineering. Uh, and so what's going on, Steve? In other words, that's a reasonable question. What is going on now? Well, the that... question I really wanted and the reason I brought up Obama is because it wasn't just any reporter for the Post that did this story with you at the Capper. It was I the know. White House bureau chief, which to me says they're looking to the Biden administration to be the next shoe to fall in the centipede. Maybe. But really what, what, what's going on is there's a competition going on between the Post and the New York Times, which has now escalated to a point where it's noticeable and very, very important. In the case of the Pentagon Papers, if only one of the two major papers had gone off to that story, the White House may be able to shut it down. But because it was both of them, and they were literally competing with each other to see if you get stuff out first, the, the White House couldn't do anything. And ultimately, Nixon was uh, forced out of office. So... In Can the I first say something? Yeah, by all means. And I want you guys, when you have a point, don't be, be polite. Break in because this is a conversation. Yes, Joe, go. Pentagon Papers competition between the Times and, and um, the Post um, is, is just brilliant, what Steve's talking about. And two of the players involved were Mike Gravel, Senator Gravel, who served on the Citizens Hearing panel, who read the Pentagon Papers into the committee that he chaired, which was the Buildings and Grounds Committee, late night, called him into, into a session and literally read the Pentagon Paper into the congressional record, thus thwarting any attempt by the Nixon administration to go after the Times. Um, and he could not be prosecuted because he was a sitting senator doing that. The other major player was Danny Sheehan, who, who uh, was a very young attorney at the time. Um, uh, representing, I believe, the Times. Is that right, Steve? So two of the people out of the um, eight of us uh, on, the, on the panel, uh, me as moderator, uh, Danny as of counsel, and Mike Gravel uh, mm -hmm. with the other six, um, Gravel and, and Sheehan were both involved in the Pentagon's Papers case all the way through the Citizens' Hearing in 2013 back together again. Yeah, so th there's that fascinating connection. And so what's happening now Again, if, if, when you try to say, what did, why did President Biden say this? Why did Hillary Clinton say that? Why did John Podesta say this? Why this article? Why that? You have to understand that what is happening now is that the journalists, by the way, there's plenty of journalists inside the Post of the New York Times that know the ET presence is real. I assure you, they're very smart people. So what is happening now is the journalists, the major papers, the DOD, the Navy, and the politicians, and ultimately the White House are trying to extricate themselves out from the 74-year truth embargo. And it's not an easy thing to do. They just can't all sign a petition one day and say, yeah, they've been here all along. Sorry, we didn't tell you. Go screw yourself, right? 
<clears throat> no. This, in order for this to happen with minimal damage and disruption to an already disrupted country, it needs to be handled in a certain way, and it needs to be gone through a certain process. In the meantime, though, everybody wants to know what's going on. Everybody's got the questions, and they can't answer those questions, whether you're Mellon or Elizondo or the president. You can't give straight answers. We are still under the truth embargo. You cannot give straight answers, which is why you have activists in this world. Because basically what activists do is give straight answers. They don't care whether it's a job issue for them or whether it's going to upset a family member. They simply say what they have to say. And one of their jobs, and getting back to something you said earlier, is that people say and think various things about things. One of the jobs of the activists is to try to get people to think correctly, to get the picture correctly so that their thinking is in line with reality. Because invariably, whenever you're in a situation where governments are simply doing something that's totally wrong, it's because there are a lot of people supporting it whose beliefs are not uh, aligned with reality. And so that's how you have to look at this. So Obama aside, what, what, what he said and what, what Biden said is, is not significant right now. It really isn't. What is significant is the two most important papers in the country are now seriously competing to be, I guess you could say, as much of a lead as possible on the biggest news story in history. The Times gets off to a great start with those two articles. They were, again, exclusives. Nothing like that had been published before. They put, as I say, a double Pulitzer Prize winner on it. They put one of their top reporters on it, and Leslie Kane. From then on, for the next three years, the Times and the Post were trading back articles back and forth, though overall the, the Post has been in second place. And then on the 3rd of June, the Times dropped another major article. Why was it major? It, it, you'd think, no, 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 this is not, we, we, we saw it coming. Why is it so major? Simple. This article is about the report that was put in play by Marco Rubio when he was the, uh, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee saying, oh, we need an analysis, uh, analysis back from, from agencies, the DOD, ONI, over Navy, and so forth. Uh, about the status of this issue and what you're doing, et cetera, et cetera, which is clearly not something that's been done lately, if ever, frankly. And so that's a big deal. He put a deadline on it of 180 days. Smart move. He, he started that deadline when the bill would be signed. End of the year. Smart move, which put the deadline for this report after the election. Rubio wasn't running. He was politically safe. And so what, what did it mean? It meant that there was going to be a six-month wrap-up of public expectation about this report. And this report isn't going to be the Condon report. And, so, and, and, and this is the modern era. This is the era of social media. And so as these six months have gone by, the social media has grown and grown and grown. Scores of podcasts have, have, have emerged out of nowhere. Everybody's interviewing everybody else, and the heat is growing. And so a few weeks before the thing is due, interestingly enough, the Times gets another leak, in a sense. It's a leak, and maybe an exclusive. If you read the June 3rd article carefully, what you, you, you figure out is it's somebody familiar with the classified portion of this developing report, leaked part of it to the New York Times. Now, this is not exactly the most, I mean, it's a national security matter, but it's not like they leaked the atom bomb secrets. <laughs> and, and, and it's very possible that it was an intentional leak. They wanted this out ahead of the report, right, for public relations purposes. And this whole thing is basically a public relations campaign. And so they get this leak, which allows them to put out this story, right? And if you read between, again, I, I feel so bad for people that haven't spent 25 years totally devoted to this issue as they're trying to read this stuff and say, what the hell is going on here when it's as plain as day to me? But hey, you know, that's, that's fine, specializing. And so what they basically leaked was what you're going to hear in the, is in the classified section, and will undoubtedly, some of it will come out in the open session, is that the fundamental premise of this report, which is exactly what I expected, is that uh, we're not going to confirm there's extraterrestrials. We're not going to show you any of the Roswell records. But what we're going to say is something that Mellon and Elizondo have been saying, and that is that the technology that is being uh, represented by 
the recent cases and witnesses, which is only a fraction of the total amount of cases like this, and the three pieces of gun camera footage, the U.S. has thousands of gun camera footages. Wasn't there a they reference could... in the Times piece to about 120 cases that this report will go into? Yeah, it doesn't doesn't mention why they why 120, but there have been thousands of cases. But they selected 120. Whatever doesn't matter. Could have been a thousand. Could have been 150. Doesn't matter. The point is, is that what they're saying is, is that what we can determine, and we're prepared to state formally to the Senate Intelligence Committee, is that we could not find evidence of an alien involvement. Sure. Okay. Fine. That's cool. <laughs> right. But no, wait, did, we, did the Times actually say that's what the report is going to say? Yeah. And so what they did say is that we have determined that uh, the technology being represented by this phenomena is not ours, meaning any of ours, meaning any part of the U.S. government, classified and, and, and unclassified programs, military and space. It's not ours. Now, here's where... That, that's very interesting, doesn't it? Because what what they've done is they've made a very safe play here. It's exactly what you'd expect. It absolutely is going to fuel the need for congressional hearings. Because if it's high technology and not ours, then it's de facto a national security matter, which is why, which is the basis that these hearings are being put together in the first place. But it doesn't suddenly put the, the uh, DOD in the extraterrestrial uh, and alien business. No, it doesn't. However, for, for the average person, it's like, oh, man, I guess, you know, we're not going to get the truth. But for an experienced person, what you just heard was profound, because let me just give your, your listeners a, a little tip here in case they have any doubts whatsoever. The United States' technology and defense and military is the finest in the world. It is equal to or greater than any technology in the hands of the Chinese, the Russians, the Canadian, the French, Somalia. Brazil, Costa Rica, <laughs> any of them, period. All right. And so if it's better than anything the United States has, it's better than any country can have. And that pretty much leaves one thing, doesn't it? It's extraterrestrial without sure. saying it. Perfect. All right. And so that is what really has just transpired here. They just sent a message out of the DOD on a leaked thing to the New York Times, who then, by the way, on this new article, it's worth noting, they, in addition, they, they, they dropped the two writers on this. Uh, Helene uh, Cooper, again, I told you her background, so she's high tier. And they added Julian E. Barnes. He is a national security reporter based in Washington, covering the intelligence agency. Mm. You think he was the person that got the leak from an intel person inside on that? Mm. Probably so. And so this article is sent a message that, hey, look, it's, it's going to, there's going to be hearings on this. The report is going to be helpful. But if you want to get deeper than what we're prepared to give you right now, you're going to have to bring in a bunch of military witnesses, put them under oath, and have them testify in front of hundreds of millions of people watching on their TVs. Okay, so now that comes out, yeah. and that, re that really puts the largest control. Hang on, Joe. You're going to have a window here in a moment. Go ahead, Steve. Finish up. Okay. That 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 puts the Washington Post behind the eight ball a little bit. Now they've dropped further behind. And so Ashley, so they decide we've got to get an article out, right? Okay. And so uh, I'll, let me put it this way. Let me let me clarify this. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> uh, I got to get this correct. Okay. I believe that the Post learned that this article was coming out. In other words, it was very similar to what happened in the, in the Pentagon. You mean the leak in the Times? Yes. They, they, they knew that the, the Times had gotten the leak, just like the Washington Post found out that, uh, that they had gotten something and there was going to be an article and, they, and, and, and it came out uh, ahead of what the Post could do. So the Post, I think, finds out that somebody's leaked something to somebody. It's probably almost certainly Julian Barnes. And so they try to move quickly to get a story out ahead of it. And so the Washington Post was published on June 1, and the Times report, the big one, which is a major report, major story, was posted on June 3. So when Ashley Parker calls me, she made it clear 
that she needed to address the political aspects of this. And she w- it was on a tight deadline. Okay. <laughs> and, and I only got a little bit of time. And so I, you know, me, I managed to squeeze 40 minutes in there, 30, 30, 40 minutes and gave her as much as I could on a political basis. Uh, and so they got, the, she said, it'll probably come out in the weekend. It came out on June one. Now, this story is important in the Washington Post, I assure you, but it's not the bombshell that the New York Times was, but the Post are them are competing. And so they didn't, obviously, they could have put anybody on this story. Well, it, they could have just it, managed it. 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 Stephen, it, it, it backgrounds the Washington Post readers for what's going to happen next. Yeah, it shows, that, it shows everybody that, hey, you, you think the Times is serious about this? We just put the White House Bureau chief exactly, on it. Exactly, exactly. Okay, okay, let me go back to Joe. Joe, thoughts yeah. on this? Yeah, one other thing. I mean, these articles are saying no evidence of ET, no evidence it's alien, but it's outperforming anything in our classified programs or that are, it's not our military encountering your experimental stuff in the deep black world. We can not say, well, we got in the deep black world, but that ain't it. There's a third thing that I think is absolutely fascinating, and that is what they're saying about what's being observed. No control surfaces, no wings, no propulsion, no exhaust, <laughs> flies for maybe 12 hours or more. Our military jets got to go back and refuel every 90 minutes or mm. less. Uh, transmedium dives down underwater, soars up through the air, probably goes out into space. Um, Can you say? And, and wait, here's the killer. These things were observed 17 years ago. You're telling me the Chinese or Russians had this 2004? And these things were observed in the 80s. Um, I've talked to Air Force pilots who, who I asked, have you, have you seen the video? And I haven't seen the video. And I'm telling them what it is. And they say, oh, you're talking about stuff dives down in the water and zooms along faster than the fastest subs by a factor of, what, 10? <laughs> and then zips out. And I said, yeah, so you've seen the video. I said, no, I saw that when I was flying in the Air Force. This is somebody who would have seen it in the 80s. You're telling me the Chinese or the Russians had this. No control services, no exhaust, stays in the air for 12 hours or more, transmedium stuff. In the 80s, any human had that? So that's what they're saying. Everything but. They're, they're saying it's alien without saying it's extraterrestrial. Well, hang on, guys. Let, let me, hang on, hang on. Let me, let me interject. It's only, you know, I'm just sitting here. What it says to me is super important high technology that can control gravity and therefore makes fossil fuels obsolete. Yeah, tackles the whole. Tackles the whole. Tackles the whole idea of climate, you know, change at the White House level from a totally different perspective. You want to talk about real infrastructure changes? Figure out how they're flying and put it to use. In other words, this is not a trivial entry point that the Pentagon, the DoD, the National Security Establishment has focused on because it will break open at the level where people will relate. God, I need this. I don't want to go to the gas station anymore. Well, we've known that for some time. But ordinary <laughs> folks reading the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post do not. That's why I, I, okay. that's why I want to go back to Obama. Because Obama, you know, remember, he's not a non-entity. He is the most beloved figure in the Democratic Party. To say nothing of maybe independence. So proof of aliens will lead to new religions and massive military spending, he's cut to the chase. He didn't say that. Uh, did you he didn't see, say that. Did you see what he actually said? That's a he synthesized said, headline. He, he raised it that that's something that could happen. He didn't say it would. He said that's something that could happen. And, and that's, that's fine. It's not an unreasonable thing to say. But there's a whole background here that uh, I, I don't know how many of your listeners know, but the Obama connection to the ET issue is long. And he's, he's directly tied to the Clintons. He, he, he was involved uh, with her election. He was part of her campaign. And as I've said a number of times. And he kept hiring uh, Podesta. <laughs> I, I, I basically forced Obama and hit Clinton and Bill Clinton and Podesta out from cover. So they had to go out and make statements during that game they did, that they didn't want to make because I had the goods to be able to to connect them to the ET issue. And my publicist and I, she's, she's a legend in this town. She worked the media in Washington. We started getting stories. And once those stories started, they just 
exploded. And, and they were getting reporters coming at them, which they couldn't speak to. And so they had to go public and say some things. That was all happening in 2015, 2016. Eventually, 400 articles were written. And so Obama knew that Clinton wanted to disclose. He's known about the ET issue forever. He, oh, I say not, not forever. The ET connection to the Clintons he's known about for quite a while. But if he didn't know, he certainly knew when he hired uh, uh, Podesta to be his campaign uh, 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 transition chief uh, and then brought Hillary Clinton and P- Pianetta into the government. And so they, he, he has been there involved in the issue, though it was, he was not going to be the disclosure president. He brought Podesta back in in 2014 for 13 months, right, talking about we don't know, except we do know. He's talking about the ET issue and how it was going to be handled in, in, in Clinton's campaign. Leslie Kane has already acknowledged she, had, she went to the White House for meetings. Who do you think she was meeting with? Podesta and probably Obama. And so he is he he knows much more about this issue. Can he say anything? He he has to be very careful. Can they just dodge all the questions? That but wait, are wait, out wait, there you, they're you, pouring you, in? You've said that several times now. He has to be careful. The president why? Absolutely. Why? Because Trump showed process. us the president can get away with almost anything. Uh the things he didn't get away with are not discussed more often, but let's just say that there is a process underway and everybody of any importance knows it and they are by and large either opposed to it or they're helping it along. And that process that is underway is we're going to get the hearings we've been trying to get, the real ones, since 1947. The best we could get was two one-day hearings in 66 and 68, which were utterly of unimportance. There was some testimony. It didn't matter. It was just for show. That's it. Dozens of attempts to get hearings in the last 60 years have all been blocked, period. You can't have them. You won't have them because hearings for military witnesses would end the truth embargo. So finally, as a result of the emergence of the TTSA and the actions of Elizondo and Mellon, the, process, the, the table has been set to actually have these hearings, and that's how they well, want wait, to wait, end Wait, wait, wait. Don't we have to really Florida. thank Harry Reid and the Senator Stevens from Alaska and in a way – All of them. All of them. All of them. But, but, but they, they – the, the, the story about Reid and Bigelow and so forth that was submitted to the Times was, of course, major impetus for what came next. Right. But the people carrying out the plan are the TTSA people now no longer with the TTSA because they they had to step out to do what they're doing. And so essentially, the people in this town over the over the in the period since uh, 2017, when they launched the TTSA, have figured out. And that includes committee chairs, congressmen, the DOD, the Navy, and and, and a lot of journalists, right? What's happening is, is they're trying to get to the hearings, right, which has been slowed down because this pandemic showed up and killed, you know, a lot of people. But it's about to end. The pandemic's getting better. They're trying to get to the hearings so they can bring in the military witnesses, hold hearings for a week or so. Okay. The testimony will be overwhelming. we We need to kind of hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning, Steve Bassett, who was the creator of the Citizens uh, event at the National Press Club, which would have gone further except some unusual events subsequently happened, and we may get into some of those. Uh, Joseph Bookman is with us. He has run for Congress twice on the ET platform. He's a libertarian. He, uh, like me, thinks that uh, Gene's famous prime directive really has basic roots in libertarian philosophy. What we're going to talk about in the next half hour is where do we go next? The mainstream press is obviously setting us up for the next chapter in this unfolding extraordinary volume, which if it's done correctly, actually if it's even done incorrectly, it's going to change human history. What we want is for it to be done correctly. You're on the other side of midnight My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.